2, Seven Heads, Ten Horns, with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Welcome back to Seven Heads, Ten Horns, the internet's only podcast history of the devil. I am Klaus Yoder, and with me, as always, my partner in heresy, Travis Stevens. Travis, how are you doing this fine late summer evening? I am very excited to report that it has gotten a little bit cooler and will remain cooler this week. The highs are in the low 70s here in Oakland, and I'm quite excited about it. We've had what we refer to as a heat wave. Um which is like 80s. I think it got up to 90 yesterday, which was very hot for us. So, but we have basically been spared the uh, difficult weather that the rest of the United States has been mainly suffering through these past few weeks. So how about you, Klaus? How are things? Things are good. Things are good. The academic school year is upon us. Many little bags with school supplies being packed up and diligently gathered and filled and that sort of thing. Um, first days of classes, that sort of back to school energy. And so, yeah, things are, things are good. So the reason we are gathered tonight is to discuss another novel in our series of devil-themed novels. This one is a bit less directly supernatural than our last one, Beyond Black by Hilary Mantel. This is a novel of the pre-World War II moment written by a German emigre who lost his citizenship as a result of his criticism of the Nazi regime. This is Mephisto by Klaus Mann. Mephisto, if you're saying Mephisto, that sounds familiar. This this is the voice that's been re- repeating and, and going on ad nauseum about Mephistopheles and the Faust stories. Well, yes, this is a book about an actor whose role as Mephisto in Goethe's Faust gets him in good with the Nazis and makes him, makes his career take off and succeed when it seemed like it was going to crash and burn because he had been a communist or a communist sympathizer for years. So, that's the basic premise of this novel. It's a novel about selling your soul to maybe not the devil, but the, arguably worse, the, the National Socialist regime in the name of careerism. So this person, Klaus Mann, was the son of the, the sort of literary heavyweight of the German-speaking world, Thomas Mann, who did The Magic Mountain and Doctor, another Dr. Faustus, which maybe look, be on the lookout for that one. I might be, might be up, up to some no good with that one at some point, though it'll probably take me a year to read. And was like just like a Nobel Prize winner. His son, Klaus, his daughter, Erica, these were, these were just some of his children. They were both literary talents but grew up, as you can imagine, like growing up under the shadow of a very famous novelist, like how that would affect your confidence and how you would, like, it, it, was, it was not a very healthy relationship. And Klaus, one of his adventures with his sister Erica was 
they both got married at the same time, like straight married. They were pretty queer. And so at the time of this early first marriage, Erica was actually having an affair with Klaus's wife, Pamela Vedekind, who was the, the daughter of a famous, famous playwright. And Klaus was sleeping with Erica's husband, the actor Gustav Grungen. Um, can we can we pause for drama? Because that that is just, I mean, all the snaps for all the family drama that's going on in the story. Thanks for bringing us into this literary world, Klaus. Please go on. Yeah, no, I mean, it's the reason I bring up the salacious details. I mean, the, the salacious details are basically the essence of the Mon family. Like these people were like incestuous sort of and really had very complicated feelings for each other. But when Klaus and Erica are in exile, writing German language exile papers from Holland, from France, from Switzerland, criticizing the regime, Erica's ex-husband, Klaus Mann's ex-lover, Gustav Grundigen, is actually seeing his career take off under the Nazis. And an acquaintance of Klaus's basically suggests that he writes a novel about Grundgen and writes a satir- like a satirical Romana Clef, like a really biting satire of Nazi life targeting this guy. And so he comes up like it's and like if you if you know it if it, to, to contemporaries the name he comes up with would have been like really obvious is like what who was talking about. So um, the name he comes up with for his character is Hendrik Hufkin. And that's, that's spoofing Gustav Grung, you know, like Grungen. It like, it sounds, he just takes an H and sw- sw- like takes out the G basically. And so it's, it's pretty clear who he's talking about. The, something I read today though, you know, we, with a, a Romana Clef, like the, the, the main character is representing a, a historical person and is attacking or satirizing or I guess maybe potentially celebrating the, this person. This is not the case in this novel. But there's also elements of Klaus's father, Tomas, and Hendrik Hufkin as well. In particular, because Tomas was a little bit slow to criticize the Nazi regime, he had a lot more to lose. Even though he, he didn't live there, he wasn't really living there, he didn't get his books banned and his citizen revoked until until 36. So it took a few years. And so the idea of this, this artist who sells his soul and compromises with the Nazis for career success, there are also hints in the plot, and I won't bury us in the details of that right now, that Tomas is also a little bit implicated in that, that representation. Dun, the, dun, those dun. two, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Those two had, uh, I mean, just like a, like a catastrophically complicated bad relationship that fed into as best as I can tell, Klaus's substance abuse issues, drug use, and eventual very early death. So yeah, um, there's there's a lot of there's a lot to walk through here. So we both watched the 1981 film version of this. The film stars Klaus Maria Brandauer, and yes, there are a lot of Klauses in this episode. It's directed by Istvan Sabo. I'm sorry, my 
Magyar Hungarian is is not up to snuff. It was the best foreign film Oscar winner of 1981. It's a Hungarian production, which is to say it's a a production of a country that was behind the Iron Curtain during the sort of last phase of the Cold War. So that's sort of some interesting interesting context. And I read the 1936 novel that was published in German, but was published in in Holland, in, in the Netherlands, uh, before the Nazis were occupying the Netherlands. And we'll talk a little bit about like the, what the differences between the novel and the film and just the, the major themes that carry across both of them. But I think one of the ways we're going to sort of work through some of this content is is like basically go through a set of questions about how this book connects to the podcast as we've been doing it as a whole so far. So without further ado, yeah. I will pass the mic baton to, to Travis to get us started. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Klaus. Um, so let's start with um, our, our title, Mephisto, which, as we know, comes from the Faust legend that we have had a mini-series of episodes on before. And it's clear that both the book and the film do draw connections from um, between the Nazis and the devil. So th that much is certainly pretty clear. So what would you say it means, Klaus, to make such a comparison? Um, is, it, is there something trite about this? Um, does, what does it accomplish? Um, how do the Nazis in both the novel version and the film version come across as demonic? How do we express that? How is that idea expressed? And um, maybe I'd love also to hear both from a historical sense, how you think this works in the, um, in the setting in which these artworks are created, but also um, uh, how, it, how it sounds to us today. I'm curious. I just think after doing this podcast for a few years now, like the comparison, there's risks to it because I just think it's clear to me that the the National Socialist regime was so much worse than anything anyone we've read about who does demonology or diabolology could come, come up with, you know, like the actual devastation and violence that was wrought and the cruelty that came out of that is, is just like surpasses the imaginations of theologians and poets to, to put forward. So I want to, you know, so I, I want to say that at the start and I like, I have ideas about why this comparison was made. I mean, first thing is like it's written in 36 published in 36, the full sweep of the Shoah hasn't, totally materialized the persecutions are underway but the, the 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 sort of machinery of mass destruction that really uh takes off with the second world war is is not quite there yet but yet the novel makes references to concentration camps for especially for political dissidents and for jews in germany in particular so there is there and, and the novel also is is making references frequently to just the, the bloodiness, just like the sort of, you're, you're looking at this like cheap, shabby opulence that seems to be dripping blood constantly throughout the movie and the film. And so the, 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 the Mon and, and, 
has a appreciation for the profound violence of this regime. And so I wonder, like, on the one hand, it's a conventional sort of comparison, like you, the deal with the devil and things like that. Part of me wonders is if, like, is this also a way to, is it just propaganda to be like, oh, these guys, you know, the demonizing gesture, like the Nazis are, are demonic, which is pretty, made pretty clear throughout the the novel that that they are. I mean, one of the things the narrator does is refer to some of the major players in the Nazi high command and, and sort of power structure as as half gods or gods or demons and tries to make them monstrous. Uh, Hendrik Hufkin's benefactor is modeled off of Hermann Goering, one of the major figures in the the military and the police structure of, of Nazi Germany. And he's described as being like, like grotesquely large, having pillars for legs, sort of almost like an ogre or a cyclops in his appearance. And so maybe part of it is just that basic demonizing gesture. I, I, I'm curious what your, what your response is. Like, is this, does this almost seem like, too obvious or too or like just not actually be able to do justice to the to the actual horrors of the situation i've been thinking about that since i saw the film and my first response when it became clear what we were doing in the film in this relationship between nazis and the demonic was that this is the most available uh language to express how terrible current events were becoming and it feels like a, in a sense a necessary um, rhetorical move device without which um, that that is of course always already hyperbolic and yet has to uh, is attempting to do the reverse of that in other words when we talk about when we use um demonological language to describe contemporary events. And we've seen this many different times in the podcast in different genres. Um, it often feels like someone is consciously raising the stakes of what's going on around them. And here something very different appears to be happening where the reality is so horrifying that there's no other language that feels appropriate to name or describe the systematic uh, murders that are going to uh, happen. The I am falling into language of evil. Like there's, there's, there are a few other ways to describe what's happening. And so while at first I was like, wow, how obvious can you be? Then I, I've developed a little bit more sympathy for the approach. What do you, what do you make of it? Yeah, I think that's really insightful. Like usually demonizing is an exaggeration, but here it feels like it can't. It's actually, our, we're just at the mercy of our limited historically limited like sort of cultural vocabularies and so that we actually start to see the limitations of that set of theological language when we encounter this something like this i think that's that 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 makes sense to me and and it's not necessarily like a critical failing of the novel to explore that because like you know the the reason that the novel like has purchased is because that this this demonic imagery has purchased is because of its centering on the Faust story 
and 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 all everything that goes along with that as a way to make sense of the choices that like this actor Hendrik Hufkin's making, the the choices that Germany's making, the what sort of the sort of bargains or the packs they're making along the way. And so that makes sense as a comparison. But we do see like the this actor is when he sort of takes on this this sort of dreadful assignment and is able to sort of talk himself into this like he is even though he portrays Mephisto in the play he's not like a demon in the way that Goering or Goebbels Himmler or Hitler are in the novel he's like pantomiming evil he's pantomiming the demonic to entertain them he's succumbed to something that's much more basic than this kind of grotesque, like sort of monstrous version of evil. He's given into radical evil, which in the sense of the philosophers like Kant or Hannah Arendt is like basically like talking himself into placing his career and his ego at the center of all of his decisions instead of like what's actually responsible to do. And he's talked to, he's, he's, he's totally, he's basically corrupted himself to the core through what are seemingly small and petty and self-serving decisions instead of these really monstrous ones. But because he's an actor, he's also pantomiming monstrous evil. And he appeals to these actual, what the, the novel shows is actual demons as like this, this like sort of court jester, this this person who's dis- there to distract and delight murderers. So there's there is like a like waves of grotesqueness and horror that come along with this. One of the things that surprised me a little bit is that he is in in the film. He is portrayed this brilliant actor is portrayed as playing Mephisto, Mephistopheles, the demonic. Um, and not Faust, which seems like, in a sense, right, the more yeah. obvious way to go. He is tempted and succumbs to temptation to uh, express his talents given to him by these you know, evil powers of the Nazi regime and takes full advantage for what, are, what seem to boil down to selfish reasons. I'm curious if the novel portrays him, his choices in that way as well, because... In, he does justify himself, but I'm not sure how exactly to read and interpret those what seem to be justifications after the fact, excuses for what is essentially selfish behavior. Right. And this this takes us into the second question a bit, because the like I think the point, the question that you're raising is really important. Like, why isn't he Faust? Why is he Faust and not, and why isn't he Faust? He's Mephisto. And, you know, some critics say Faust and Mephisto are like sort of two halves of the same person. Mm -hmm. That's one way to think about it. And I think the, what I see in this is, you know, if we, we sort of rehearse the traditional Faust story, there's a bargain or a pact with the devil. And we talked about this, like, it doesn't actually make a lot of sense to be like, oh, I'm going to get a lot of power for 30 years, <laughs> but then, or 20 years, but then I'm going to have uh, suffer this horribly painful death and be damned to hell for eternity. It doesn't make a lot of sense. 
in Marlowe's version, it's because Faustus like sort of can talk himself into not thinking that the Orthodox theology is true. And so he's not going to be damned or whatever. But anyway, um, if we're, we're centering on the Goethe, the Goethe version, the Goethe version of the story is not this straightforward deal, if you may, as you may recall. It's a bet. It's a bet that Mephisto will never actually be able to satisfy what Faust wants. Faust wants the infinite. He wants to like have this intimacy and knowledge with like the universe. He, he wants like these deep sublime things. He, he wants like a kind of satisfaction that's almost like platonic or like not in the sense of like, Oh, we're not having sex. We're just friends. But like in the sense of like, like being completely like, completely satisfied complete you're you're sort of longing for the good and the beautiful and the true like just being completely saturated and so i think what we get with the the actor hendrik hoofkin who plays mephisto is sort of an anti-faust or like actually we're getting a we're getting a warning as to like what happens if Faust were to take up Mephisto and actually be satisfied. Like with, with, with Hufkin, we see like, Oh, like, Oh, if you do like eat the fruit and enjoy the women that, that Mephisto provides you with. And you like, if you really let yourself go in those baser aspects of what the demonic offers, this is what's going to happen to you. And in Goethe's Faust, Faust, you know, arguably doesn't. And in the story we see through the self-deception, through the desperate calculations for the survival of one's career and the, not just survival, but like sort of the, the sort of aggrandizement of one's career that goes together with trying to satisfy or, or trying to survive internal Nazi purges. We have like someone who's like a slave to like really limited desires that he's sort of turned into gigantic ones and really important ones. Whereas like, so he's, I guess all I'm saying is like, in some ways he's an anti-Faust. He doesn't, he does the things that Faust promises he won't do, if that makes sense. One thing also to be said about the demonic and the role of the Nazis in the book and the film Mephisto is that Mon actually shows Hulfkin to be more vicious and faithless than actual Nazis. So one of his co-workers in the Hamburg film theater scene is this guy Hans Miklas, who's a longstanding Nazi party member, sort of at the bottom, you know, not an elite, but who's like this suffering, starving artist and who actually gets into a spat with Hendrik because Hendrik insults the paramour or the wife or the partner of the Hermann Göring character. And Hendrik insults her and they, they have like this to-do about it and then Miklas gets dismissed. Well, later, it's this very woman who years before Hulfkin insulted who's instrumental in getting him access to Goering and getting him his major accolades and chances to shine in the Nazi theater scene. 
And so Hans Miklas is able to sort of work his way back into acting because he's a committed Nazi. But by the time Hulfgen has gotten his power and prestige, Miklas is totally disillusioned with the movement. He's like there waiting for national socialism, but he just sees petty, corrupt capitalism with a fascist apparatus and leaders who liquidate even massive numbers of their own stormtroopers with references to the Night of the Long Knives. And so Miklos actually ends up being executed by his erstwhile comrades because he is vocally critical of the regime and is so like broken and disillusioned by the experience of seeing the his ideals like being unable to produce anything like a just society that he very flagrantly and self-destructively puts himself in harm's way by challenging the nazis vocally and gets himself shot in the woods so this actual nazi is shown as having more principles and more integrity than the protagonist or anti-hero or however you want to however you want to classify Hendrik Hulfgen in, in in the book and the film. Yeah, that's that's quite interesting. I wonder if you're ready to if we could turn then to um, the idea of race to talk a little bit about race next. Um, both the novel and the film are anti-fascist and anti-racist when it comes to 
the Nazi policies and anti-Semitic violence and murder. How else does race matter um, for the book and the film? And how, how is it different between the two? Because we have um, Juliet in the novel. Could we talk a little bit about her? Right. And Juliet's in the film, too. Yeah, she is. She's in the film. And it's a, it's a bit different. Okay. So, right. You mentioned that the novel has avowedly anti-racist commitments it would seem anti-fascist commitments and yet at the same time that must coexist with this character Juliet who is like the height of anti-black racism and sort of a historical primitivist animalistic imagery regarding black people people from Africa and in the in the novel she has a German father who's like this sort of drunken engineer working in the colonial field and the mother's royalty of some non-specified part of, of sub-Saharan Africa. And the thing about Juliet is Juliet is a sex worker who engages in S and M sex with Hendrik Hufkin in the novel. And we're supposed to, I think, see this as a kind of shocking supplement that covers up uh, Gustav Grundigen's homosexuality, which was well known. <laughs> that's the kind of thing that's funny is that Mann comes up with this elaborate sadomasochistic interracial thing as a way of being like, okay, I guess homosexuality is exotic, so I have to come up with something else that I think is exotic too. Or what are two groups that Nazis hate is one other way of thinking about that transposition going between right. right the the real life situation and the romanacle that he that he composes. Yeah, she is just um, in the film as well. Um, Juliette is half talks about being half German or having a German parent and an African parent and um, and identifying as German. I, I was curious. She's like, I belong here. You know, that sort of sentiment. I was curious if that also shows up in the novel, the sense of, um, it was the one moment where I thought, oh, she sort of seems like a character for like one second. Um, it, it it does a bit. It does a bit in the novel, this idea that I, I belong here too. And I speak this language and right. my father's German. There is that. And it, it's, it's, it's confusing to know what to do with that. And because like, at least in the film, I think she is a bit more of a well-rounded character. In the novel, she's like sort of brooding and childish and like, like, I don't know, just sort of seems like a plot device. Like she has, she doesn't really have a lot of, uh, of an interior life aside from like, she, she knows, uh, Hufkin's weaknesses like she has like some perspicacity when it comes to like psychological things but the thing that is so like she's satisfying him sexually in a way that none of the other his, his other partners you know really can un, sort of until the end but it's neither here nor there because what one of his later uh partners takes up the snm for him in order to satisfy that but one of the things that the the novel makes clear is that it's not just sex that comes out of this relationship, but she's also teaching him how to dance too. But like she, she like teaches him like this footwork that translates into how he's 
like present on stage. And so it's sort of strange because it's, it sort of suggests that the kind of thing she gives him is access to this kind of primitive raw power that is seen to be like kind of in league with the energies being released by national socialism. She's portrayed as primitive and frequently in kind of liberal and left rhetoric of the time, the Nazis were portrayed as primitive or primitivistic too. And so there's like, that almost seems like a sort of a meeting point for his eventual ability to win over and be cool with the Nazis and like the kind of energy she unleashes. Of course, this is like very strange. And one of the ways, and my friend Ernie Mitchell helped put me onto this was this, this famous book by Toni Morrison called playing in the dark about it's, and it's about, the American, the U.S. literary canon, but it's about how white writers create black characters that are often, in similar ways to this, like one-sided, flat, no in, no interiority, ahistorical. And Morrison's like, well, what are they doing with this? Like, how, what what is what is going on with these characters? And she's, you know, she's pretty clear that they're racist, but she's like, it's we need to see beyond denouncing them as racist. We need to see what they give white writers permission to do. And one of the things she writes about this is that if we follow through on the self-reflexive nature of these encounters with Africanism, Africanism is her word for white writers making up stuff about black people and make putting on these characters it falls clear. Images of blackness can be evil and protective, rebellious and forgiving, fearful and desirable, all the self-contradictory features of the self. Whiteness alone is mute, meaningless, unfathomable, pointless, frozen, veiled, curtained, dreaded, senseless, implacable. Or so our writers seem to say. So it was just helpful to see this because like really is like the stumbling block of the novel. I mean, the novel has other, some other issues too, but like primarily in terms of like its politics and morality to be writing this anti-Nazi novel while relying on like a really gruesomely like, I don't know, like distorted and like bizarre image of blackness was like a real, a real head scratcher. Um, what, what was your sense of how it worked in the film? I first of all did not catch on that she was a sex worker um as the the first scene that i remember from the film in which she plays a big part is this you know is a a dance lesson and they're at her place and which has a bar and a mirror like a dance studio would and she's he's an actor and it makes all sorts of sense that they are together and she's training him dancing is an important part of his acting is portrayed in the film at least. So it's not just a kind of this kind of stage presence that you described before, but literally uh, he dances and is well known for yeah. his, uh, his dance moves. Though they don't correspond to the steps that they're rehearsing, right? Right. That right, um, right. kind of untamed wildness does very much read like, this what Morrison describes as Africanism here her you know she's the wild black woman with wild hair and you know it it does feel like a 
like a racist trope that's quite familiar. But yeah, what's interesting about how Morrison deals with this is that she wants to look at the sort of way race works and the power structures, but she's she's not really invested in in hand wringing about it. She's she's just very clear eyed about it. And one of the main things to draw from her analysis is is that the purposes that white authors put black characters to are structurally necessary, not only for white supremacy, but also she wants to say for the complex literary representations in the novels, like that these are these, that in other words, that these, the Africanism or the, the, the sort of what seem in the, the 2020s to be like these like horribly gauche and, and retrograde moments for Morrison in many cases. And she's looking at like Hemingway and, and all across the canon of, of U S literature in particular, they are inseparable from what makes these stories and novels interesting aesthetically and morally. <laughs> she, she doesn't think they can be scrubbed or, sanitized or removed like sore tonsils like they like we're stuck with them according to to morrison um and i you know i i will say i mean i think that's a especially with u.s and north atlantic literature in general i mean i think that that makes a lot of sense like you, like the, it's it would be so easy if we could just pull a jefferson's bible with all the the stuff we didn't like in hemingway and Mark Twain and Melville and et cetera, et cetera, and Edgar Allan Poe. But like, she wants to say like, no, you can't, you just can't do that. It's, it's, it's part, it would, it would remove a crucial thread and the whole thing would fall apart without them. But yeah, I don't, you know, so I think that's interesting. At the same time, I do think the film shows how you can deal with this in ways that are not as like just, cartoonish as they it's more it's the book is so much more cartoonish than the the, the film about this stuff it's 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 hard to get across well they're also separated by you know nearly 50 years right so yeah yeah yeah. i don't know what do you think it how do you think it would have worked if instead of this whole africanism of klaus mann the film had just been like oh yeah he's a closeted gay guy (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like what would that have done like would it would it ha- would it really hurt the story that's a great question i wonder are you presupposing that the novel that it was based on also went for it because we see a kind of adapt an interesting more perhaps more complex adaptation of juliet's character when we move from the book to the no- from the book to the film I wonder if something similar would have occurred had the novel portrayed the historical situation in a more direct manner. Um, So, but that aside, in terms of just the structure, structure of the film itself, no, it would have been fine. There's, there's no reason to, that I can see that we, we needed to pick a black woman over whatever race his male lovers were or lover lovers were. Right, because they're both hated by the Nazi regime and are uh, interrupt the program of racial, of white supremacy of the um, the myth of the 
um, the one supreme race, you know, over all others, that it's, it's all about purity, et cetera, and homosexuality and the, the pink triangle symbol that came out of that era. Yeah, um, terrible and bad in, in different ways, of course, right? It's not focused around questions of reproduction and purity in quite the same way, but sexual impurity functions in it um, in a somewhat similar way. They, you know, everyone needs to die. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They need to be removed. The other thing I, I want to say, like, I, I started, we started this off by framing it, like, this is like an anti-racist, anti-fascist novel on the surface, and yet you have this racism in it. And, like, I guess this helps sort of, like, disabuse us of naivete, especially about this period and, like, German leftists and liberals, where you could see, like, Theodor Adorno, like, famous Frankfurt School philosopher and musical theorist wrote racist condemnations of jazz because you know like Hannah Arendt you know much later wrote in a way that was like really condescending towards the civil rights movement was really dismissive of Brown v. Board was really like basically racist when it comes to thinking about the black freedom struggle in the United States so like Klaus Mann is not unique in making this committing this kind of a, an error or like uh, for, for going in this direction, but it's just, yeah, it, it's, it's very jarring when you, when you read it. Okay. Here's the question and something I don't know about Nazi Germany and its program of um, systematic murder of various peoples. And I'm a little embarrassed to admit this. Um, what was their attitude toward black people living in Germany at the time? I certainly know that um, certainly in the film, it's true that, Juliet was a problem because of her, her connection to him and that he was threatened by his association with her. Uh, as you had asked the question about what would have happened if he had portrayed, if instead it had been a male lover. Um, gay men in Nazi Germany were sent to concentration camps. What happened to black people in Germany at the time? Obviously the relationship was a problem, but would she have been, how exactly would her experience of living in, in Nazi Germany have been, I just am not, not familiar. Okay, this is a note or a sidebar. Travis asked a really great question here that we did not immediately have an answer to on the tips of our tongues, but did a little work and found out a little bit more about this history. The black people in Germany, and there were a very significant number of them from going back through the medieval period, but especially in the context of Imperial Germany's African colonial adventures, there were people who would be coming from Cameroon, Rwanda, Burundi, Tanzania, Namibia, and Togo. Those are the, the present day names for the places they came from. And they would be there in Germany working, maybe getting some training or education, but not as citizens, even though for the most part, even though they were part of the imperial, part of the empire. So that was one aspect of black life in Germany as a sort of context to this to this question. In the wake of World War One, France had black troops occupying the Rhineland region, and there, through like years of being there, there were interracial couples who came out of that encounter there were mixed race children and this like created a lot of anxiety about race and racial purity in weimar era germany before the rise of the nazis even 
And with the Nazis' assumption of power in 33, life for black people in Germany got, as you might imagine, a lot harder. They were excluded from public performances if they were working in entertainment. Black children in Germany going to school were subjected to harassment by students and teachers, and by 1941, they they were banned from attending public school. Part of what was in place that made black life in Germany really difficult in the Nazi period were the Nuremberg race laws, as well as the the law for the restoration of the civil services, which basically took anyone out of public employment who wasn't Aryan, as the Nazi state defined it. With the Nuremberg race laws, there were two applicable laws. The first was the Reich citizenship law, which defined a German citizen as a person who is of German or related blood. And this was to exclude Jews, Roma, and black people from having political rights in Germany. The second pertinent law was the law for the protection of German blood and German honor. This law banned race mixing, what was called race defilement or Rassenschande, which is a word that appears in this novel and in the film when... Uh, discussing Hendrick's relationship with Juliet. Mann would have been well familiar with the Nuremberg race laws. They appeared in 1935, around the time he would have been writing this novel. And it strikes me that he would have had to have been aware of not only the anti-Semitic components, but also the anti-Black components. And so this forbade intermarriage and sexual relations between Jews and people of German or related blood. It also, there was a supplement to it that forbade black people in Germany to marry people who were German or of related blood. Couples, interracial couples were separated and there were forced sterilizations of mixed race people and, and black people during this period. As we enter the Second World War, these sorts of oppressions become more extreme There aren't exact figures for how many black people in Germany were forced into concentration camps, but there was believed to be a very significant number in in concentration camps and forced labor camps, as well as people who who were murdered. And I think the point here is that this is a phenomenon. This racial oppression is understudied at the moment and is in the process of being given more attention by scholars and historians. And, and, and so we're kind of at a moment of transition of seeing the full scope of the racial system of Nazi Germany and the, 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 the violence it unleashed. So this is the end of the sidebar note. Thanks for your patience. I wonder if we could move now to... Um the novel and the film in terms of representing the story, what are the assets and drawbacks of each? Um, Does one or the other tell the story better in some way? And here it would be a fair question to ask, well, what story do we mean? Do we mean the historical situation, the kind of key that's in the, in the phrase, right? Or, um, or is there some other uh, standard of, uh, 
a successful work of art that we want to think about. One of the trailers reports um, Igmar Bergman as saying it's the only instance he preferred a film to a novel. What do you think? What do you make of that? I would say that the film, I think, technically is very adept at telling the story. I was amazed having read the novel and seen the film, how much the film packed in. It was over two hours. It wasn't super long. It wasn't short either, but it's, it felt for me, my sense was that, you know, sort of someone growing up in like the era of HBO and, and, and series and and Netflix and stuff like, I almost think this would be a better series than a film. I thought it was a little comp- too compressed and that actually the novel gave us a bit more time to understand the sequence because like a lot of it happens very fast in the no- in in the film and that for me like I thought that I thought that filmed looked fantastic and I think the film does a great job at showing like the sort of like really garish and like like aesthetically disgusting splendor that the Nazis aim for in their cultural and artistic productions that a lot of this this novel and film takes place in that world so I, I do think there that really comes in full effect in the film in a way that the novel just kind of can't fully convey but I do think that the novel was a bit too pinched and a bit rushed. What do you think? What was your, so having just seen the film, like what was your sense of how character development and that sort of thing occurs in the film? Um, well, it's interesting since we were talking about Juliet earlier, I would say the film does not pass the Bechdel test. <laughs> um, no. I would say I also appreciated the way it represented Nazi aesthetics as a kind of almost nausea-inducing spectacle of color, of wealth, of strength, of German identity, and the search for some, of course, totally made-up purity of German spirit and culture that's based in race. That was very well done. In terms of character development, I think I did very much enjoy watching him struggle to move from a pretty politically engaged artist who was very much against the principles that guided the Nazi regime to someone who at first seemed to just want to survive and then started to seem to enjoy what he was doing. I liked I liked the character development of our main character. I thought that was very well done. I will say that it's amazing what the film accomplished in so short a time. That stuff is very, made very clear in the novel because in novel, and probably you get this in the film too, it's, it's hard for me to peel both of them apart from each other, but he keeps committing to these revolutionary theaters and like he keeps committing to these communist affiliated projects, but like slow rolling them, like always procrastinating. He like has no follow through. He's, he's portrayed as someone who like is basically a conformist. And so when like left politics are popular and chic, he's with it when they're not, 
whatever. But he he's able to talk himself. He still has communist friends he's trying to help who are in trouble with the regime. And so he will tell them and tell himself that he's like, oh, well, I'm I'm doing the best I can and I'm actually helping people from the inside. You know, like I'm going to fuck things up from the inside and go to business school sort of attitude. Like he's he's like totally deceived himself as to what he's doing. And um, one of the themes that comes across with that is him being an actor and just the, the novel and the film suggests that like his total commitment to the craft and his total commitment goes beyond any kind of ethics to the point that he, he, you know, it's almost like what people used to say about Trump, like he can make himself believe anything, right? Like it, it doesn't, you know, and like this goes along with being an entertainer and being totally mediatized and like sort of living for getting the applause is like, he has no real convictions. Uh, we were talking a little bit about the film and some of its interesting moments. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the wedding celebration toward the end of the film. There's this really wild scene where there's a, the characteristic Mephisto uh, full face makeup, very distinctive, that he wears in two productions that we see during portrayed during the film, one before the Nazis have taken over really uh, the the National Theater, etc., and then one when he becomes, when he starts kowtowing to them. And then in this scene, toward the end of the film, we see a group of guys wearing that face paint and who all dance really weirdly around our main character. It's what did you make of that moment? What do you think what we, that that was meant to evoke? Are we drawing on kind of the demonic there? And if so, what's the valence of that? How did you, how did you interpret it? Yeah. So that part does not happen in the, in the novel. And just to be clear, the wedding. So Hendrik Hufkin gets married twice in the novel and the film once to Barbara Bruckner, who is more or less, I think this supposed to be uh, one like Erica Mann and sort of marries into the Mann family. But then there's also this character who is Nicoletta von Niebuhr, who is Barbara's friend who has this really passionate relationship with an older writer and then she, like this person goes into convalescence and is so depressed by the Nazis. And she kind of just goes back because she needs to like, she wants to live her life and she can basically deal with the Nazis. And so they're both these like corrupted self-serving would be aesthetic creatures. And they become this power couple. And that's the wedding we're talking about at the end. And the Hermann Göring character materializes for it. So like really sort of showing honor f- to the the Hendrik Hufkin character who was like materially benefited with like this beautiful house in Berlin. And like, it's just like sort of really just like raking it in through this Nazi power connection. And in the film, yeah, we have this really creepy scene where a bunch of like sort of clown like evil clown like figures don the mephisto face paint and this is something we haven't said like he the way that 
the Mephisto character from the Faust play looks in this is like with this sort of like really sort of ghoulishly white face. And that's sort of like the, the iconic image from the film is this white faced demonic character. If you go and see Gustav Grundigan's version of Mephisto, which he did play in like a 1950s or 60s version, it is exactly the same. They look identical. Uh, so the the criticism is, the critique, the, the satire, whatever, you know, the sort of the character assassination is really vividly there in, in that. And the film has Hufkin encircled by these people. And I mean, I think like it kind of interprets itself, right? Like he's he's trapped in his own bullshit, yeah. basically, yeah. right? He's being, you know, and I love the way it does it. It, it looks great on film. It, if you described it in the book, it would be like very pedantic probably, but like on the screen, it just, it, it looks very creepy and like kind of like bizarrely carnivalesque and, and things like that. And there's the creepiness of the kind of multiplication of his persona sort of seen all around him. It's a moment of, we wonder if he has any uh, moment of reflection on who he's become. Right. Probably, probably would, not, but... Uh. Probably not. Well, you know, it's funny. This is a, a key difference between the book and the film. The book makes it clear that he ultimately recognizes his own artistic mediocrity in his inability to do justice to Hamlet. And he has to come face to face with that. And that's, that happens. That's something that happens in the book. I also wanted to say about this like sort of ghoulish white face paint. If you recall that passage I read from Toni Morrison where like whiteness is like this kind of blank sort of stupefyingly inhuman you know evil thing i keep thinking about how the juliet character is like kind of giving hendrick his mojo and you have like this sort of like this black energy that's supposed to be like animating his his charisma through like the sexual release and through the skills she teaches him but then of course he puts on this like this like pale as pale face paint to play his signature role there's just like it really does play into that her account of the africanism i think and the sort of the way black and white operate in these different literatures as as sort of like these symbols of of these different like both inhuman like but different dimensions of inhumanity that are that are going on it reminds me a little bit of the the Chinese slang for white people, which is ghost, right? Which translates to ghost. <laughs> the, the, like, like doubling down on the creepiness of, of a pale face. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. No, I, that, exactly, exactly. So we have that part. That's towards the end. Mm-hmm. And then we're the, the ending of the novel and the ending of the film are, are quite different. The, the film ends essentially where the novel begins, which is at Goering's the sort of the general who's empowered Hufkin at his birthday party. So what did you see happening in the film? Like what, what, like it has a very strange and sort of sudden ending and it doesn't involve anyone apparently dying or anything, but like, yeah, like what did you, what did you see happen? There's a spotlight. Uh... Yeah. I mean like he, like, the Goering character is like, oh, you got to come with us. And suddenly a spotlight just on him and sort of chasing him around this like outdoor stadium or like amphitheater or something. Right. Like, 
and he's it's like very and like the the general is just laughing and he's like really stressed because like what's going on and he's kind of like like what do they want from me i'm just an ordinary i'm I'm just an ordinary actor like what do they want from me and those lines are in the book too but i did find that very interesting i for me it recalled the sense that he has on the one hand he he's not a perfect nazi right (laughs) he wasn't able to transform himself into one of them and so he um and and also that when you put your trust in dictators you know there or you're at the subject the the whim of their moods and their desires because there's no guiding set of principles there are no controls or checks on their power and so it's ultimately you're a pawn in their game and so if they want to make you run around and if they want to chase you and if they want to harm you and if they want you to throw you in a concentration camp they can just do so and there's no check on that power and so to me it evoked the kind of uh, fragility of trying to even play along in such a regime that it's not actually possible to perform the role so to speak perfectly what about you i think that's i think that's i think that's perfect i mean i could i don't think i could say it any better the only thing i will say sort of getting us towards wrap up is that that doesn't happen in the novel what happens is hendrick fails basically to protect his communist actor buddy from being executed mm-hmm. and this is this this person hans ulrich right and he's he does a lot to help ulrich he, he gets he persuades Goering to pull ulrich out of prison out of concentration camp but hans ulrich is just like i'm gonna keep organizing for this communist like that's just what i'm gonna do and he ends up getting killed and hufkins visited in the, the the what's basically the last scene by this red-bearded avenging angel of communism who really kind of strikes a pose as to like being like Mary Shelley's creature from Frankenstein. He like scales this like v- villa and goes up to the balcony and he's like sort of squatting on like the, on the, on the, ter- on the, on the balcony. <laughs> and he's like, Oh, he's like, Oh, we're going to remember you buddy. Like we're not going to forget about you. <laughs> and it's just like this, this avenging angel of communism. He's like, we're, we're going to get you. Like we're going to get you no matter what. And, the real life Gustav Grindigan did survive the third Reich and did make it into like basically what was a comfortable life in West Germany afterwards. But this novel imagines that the communists are like, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to get you one day. And it's striking to me that like at the, the end that you described is like the sort of the threat of the Nazis and the, the novel ends with the threat of like, oh, radical communists are going are gonna to come for you and, and, and take care of you. And so there's kind of a contrast there. And it's like kind of all the odder because this film is filmed, a st- you know, from behind the Iron Curtain. This is a Hungarian film in the 1980s. Like this is a, this is a country that's part of like the Soviet-aligned countries, you know. So it's interesting that it didn't take that, that path or make that choice to emphasize sort of like this communist bravado and like heroism and sort of you know revenge thing um but it, it, it really didn't it really didn't do that did it want to so, yeah. did the film want to be want to tell not as political a story in 1981 i just don't know enough about the context for where it was made and and the reasons but it seems yeah. like a generalizing yeah. move to say okay that's that's where this was before 
and we right. want to tell a story that relates to the politics of the time, but maybe not quite so tightly as tied to its historical specificity. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mentioned that Grindigan, like Grindigan, like basically Klaus Mann may have committed suicide or may have just died of a drug overdose. Like part of this was also like his really fraught relationship with his father, his, like his disappointment in his sister sort of taking the father's side and not being with him and living as a duo with him. Um, heavy drug use over, over decades, but also like he's coming to, he has to come to terms with the fact that this person who he wrote this novel about is being rehabilitated in West Germany appears on the cover of Der Spiegel in the forties, like basically is fine after being a Nazi actor and the novel Mephisto was banned f- because of, for defamation reasons by, because of it was, it was seen as this very direct t- attack on, on, on Grindigan. And there was a whole, like there's a whole set of jurisprudence around litigating whether this novel could be, could be published or not in West Germany. And it, they kind of just forced it through. But the, 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 as far as I understand, in terms of the timeline, the Hungarian 1981 film came out before the novel was even wide was even available to be purchased in West Germany in, in a in a major way. <laughs> so wow, that's super interesting. And so, like in, in the immediate aftermath, it seemed as if Gustav Grindigan had sort of won. Klaus Mann mm-hmm. like died in disgrace and ruin, and his novel wasn't even allowed to be published in the country that had come that had emerged out of one of the Germanies that had emerged out of the Second World War. But Klaus Mann's reputation and the 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 platform and the the notoriety of this film and this novel really exploded in the 1980s in a way that like people actually remember who Klaus Mann is and have no idea. In large part, if you're not like a German film actor scholar person, who Gustav Grindigan was, so yeah. wild. So, but yeah, yeah. Well. Thanks for joining us for another novel. This was a, this is a novel film combo episode, so that's that's great. Thanks for listening. See you next time. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Ward, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you.